0: I wonder if I have to convince you how divided our world is today. I wonder if I have to give you some examples to prove that uh, the world, our nation, is pretty sharply polarized. Uh, or, if, or if we get it. <laughs> or, or if we got it, yeah. Um, this passage that we're going over today is about unity. Unity. Paul's going to speak to this. And so I was doing some, doing some work, Googling unity. <laughs> it's pretty great research I was doing. And I came across some, uh, uh, or a New York Times article that was something to the effect of the divided states of America. So, you know, some, some, some clever like that. And uh, in the article, it was talking about how divided we are, how we're more polarized than we've ever been. And it referenced uh, something that Vanderbilt had created. Vanderbilt, this great university, has created something, the uh, unity index. So the unity index helps us gauge, helps us see, helps us measure how divided or how unified we are on on an ongoing basis. And I was going to put the the chart up for you, but it was kind of lame. Just imagine a line that starts really high and comes really low. (laughs) Unity Is that an all-time low? I know, shocker. You didn't see that. You didn't see that coming. It started, they they did, I don't know what the data was. It was something like riots and political, um, uh, I don't know, discourse or something. How they measure unity, right, is uh, is a thing. And it started in the 80s. They got the data back to the 80s. In the 80s, we were at an all-time high. What was going on in the 80s? Was it the mullets? Was it the the stonewashed jeans? If that was the case... We got good things coming, right? Mullets are coming back. Stonewashed jeans are going to be going to be here, or they already are here. I cannot believe that this is making a comeback, but probably wasn't the reason for unity. Why were we best friends in the '80s? Why was that? Is it because we were fighting communism when we were all united because of that? Or was it Ronald Reagan? you know, everybody loved Reagan, Democrats and Republicans alike. <laughs> Whatever. Regardless, the 80s, we were at an all-time high, and we've been in a steady decline ever since, and now we're at an all-time low. That's what the Vanderbilt Unity Index stated. And I watched a video of the creators of this, and this person was saying, We created this index so that we could measure, we could quantify unity in this country so that politicians could see, so that we take this vague concept of unity and we quantify it so they could see it visually, so they could understand how divided we are, so that they could fix that, so that they could address that, the politicians could. And it was like, I heard that and was like, Is, can they fix it? <laughs> are they gonna fix it? Like, oh! Thank you for the graph. Now I see that we're at an all-time low. I will be happy to leave my whatever. What I hold near and dear to my heart or, or to my political party. And I will compromise now because I see it on the graph. And I don't mean to be mean to these people. They're just trying to help out. They're just trying to, just trying to put forth some information. Hopefully we can do something with it. But um, we all have a desire for unity. The problem is the ability to unify is not there the world and politicians when they get up and we say we just must come together we must unite when they just say we must unite for you for unity's sake unity for unity's sake is is like hollow it's empty it's powerless it's like that's not gonna work that's not enough we need to be unified in something. And we need to be unified by something. That's what Paul's going to talk about here in a little bit. The world is struggling to come up with answers by itself without, without scripture. John Lennon had a solution he, in his song, Imagine. You guys probably all know it, all of, you, uh, all of you older folks. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too imagine all the people living life in peace you may say that i'm a dreamer but i'm not the only one i hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one what's john lennon's idea of unity forget what you love forget the things near and dear to your heart. forget the country that people have died for that maybe some in here have fought for forget that Forget your religion, forget your faith, forget the things that that are are most important to you, the things that you've built your life on, and join me in my religion. Because atheism, the idea of no religion, is a religion, right? It is a a set of beliefs about the world. He's telling us, leave what you hold near and dear behind and conform to my beliefs. That's not the way we unite. That's not going to work. But Lenin points, or excuse me, paints an interesting picture. Think about this. No countries, no borders, nothing to fight for, nothing to die for, just peace. What does that sound like to you? Kind of sounds like heaven, doesn't it? I don't think Lenin meant to describe heaven here, but he's describing it. No more wars, no more fighting, no more pain, no more suffering, no more religions. There will be no religions in heaven. I will be your God, you will be my people, is how it will be. Just the one God in heaven. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. This is religion, i mean, sorry, not religion, this is heaven he's painting a picture of. He doesn't realize that. But in heaven, we will be perfectly united it will be an amazing place of peace love harmony but we're not there yet (laughs) so we need to address the disunity we need to address the division and the difficulty that we are experiencing in this world paul is going to help us do that paul in this section in these three verses 11 12 and 13 he's going to talk about two different types of division two different types of separation and alienation. He's going to talk about the the alienation between us and God, the separation between us and God, and the alienation and the separation between each other. There's two different types that he's going to address. So let's look at the text and let's talk through them. First we're going to we're going to look at verse 11. Paul says remember twice in these two sections, at the beginning of 11 and the begin, beginning of 12. He really wants these Ephesians, who are Gentiles, he really wants them to understand what he's talking about. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What the heck does that mean? What is he? What, Paul? What are you saying? He's addressing the, the cultural alienation. There is deep-seated hostility between Jews and Gentiles and the uncircumcision. I don't know if the quotes are up there. I can't tell. My eyes are terrible. When they call them the uncircumcision, it's a racial slur that the Jews are lobbing at the Gentiles. They hate, Jews hate Gentiles. This guy, Barclay, William Barclay helped... Uh, or I read him, and he helps kind of describe, says, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's pretty rough. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. It wasn't even permissible for a a Jewish person to help a Gentile mother in childbirth because you were just helping another Gentile enter the world. The Jews hated the Gentiles so bad that the Jewish people weren't allowed to marry the Gentiles. And if they did, if a Jew married a Gentile, they would quickly perform their funeral because it was like equivalent to death. There is deep seated hostility between these two people, and Paul is, is helping the Ephesians remember this alienation between each other. John Stott says uh, the Jews, w- or, or when God called Abraham, he promised through his lineage to bless all the earth's families. So when, when God chose the, uh, the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, that was to bless everyone, not just the Jews. And in choosing Israel, he intended her to become a light to the nations. The tragedy is, Israel forgot her vocation. Israel forgot about that. And they twisted the privilege, the blessing that God gave them. They twisted that into favoritism. And they ended up despising and detesting the heathen Gentiles as dogs, they would refer to them. This is a pretty brutal division we're things are pretty divisive right now but um we got nothing on the jews and gentiles like try, try sending a tweet with somebody that you disagree with and say "Yeah, oh, yeah god created you to be fuel for the fires of hell that that's not gonna that's not gonna go over real well It was as bad back in the day. I mean, I know the Vanderbilt Unity Index says we're at an all-time low, but this sounds pretty bad. This sounds like it's been bad for a while. And Paul wants them to remember the cultural alienation, the the cultural separation that we have with each other. But that's not it. He goes on to verse 12, and he calls them out and, and wants them to remember the second alienation, the second separation that's between us and God. In verse 12, he says, remember, again, That you were, at that time, separated from Christ. He's doing again what he did at the beginning of chapter 2. Do you remember this? I'm in the wrong section. He said to the Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's reminding them where they came from. And he's doing it again. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ because of your trespasses and sins, Ephesians. You were alienated from God. You were separated from him. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is reminding them of the two forms of separation the the cultural separation the cultural alienation and the spiritual alienation that we have with God. He wants to do this to remind them number 1 of how far they've come what God has what God has done to to bring them back into the family of God to to go and rescue them. He's just describing how great our God is. God loves to go to the people that are the lowest of the low, doesn't he? He loves to pick up those who have just been tossed aside by the world. He loves to scoop them up and to save them. He's he's painting a picture for them, and and he's painting a picture for us so that we can know who God is. saying, remember that. But he's also reminding them of what happened to them so they aren't doomed to repeat what the Jews had done to them. Try to follow me on this. The Jews alienated them from the family of God. And they were alienated from God as well. We have a tendency to do that. When we are are brought into the family of God, we have a tendency to look down our nose at other people and consider them not as cool as us. That's what he was warning the Ephesians not to do. Don't do this. Don't fall into that trap that the Jews fell into our nature our tendency is to brag about the things that make us better than everybody else he's warning the ephesians not to do this he's warning us not to do this don't look at everybody out there outside of the church and look down your nose at them and say they're not as good they don't have they don't have what i have i'm better than them we do this when we are divisive When the church is divisive, we perpetuate this cultural alienation. We can keep people from from coming to the church, which is where they can hear the gospel, and resolve that separation and that alienation from God. You following this? When we are divisive with people... And they say, "This you are a Christian? I'm not coming to church. Like, we're putting a roadblock in front of them to come hear the very gospel that is meant to save them. And so we must, as Christians, be careful not to do this. But we do it. I've done it. Recently. Think about the last couple years. How, how would we have been divisive. Is there anything to be divisive over the last couple of years? Can you think of anything? Mm, no. Think about uh think about masks. <laughs> think about uh vaccines? Anybody getting worked up about either of those things? Think about the government shutting down businesses, just just closing doors. What gets you fired up? I was thinking about like what what has Where has this been affected in my life? And I was thinking to a conversation I had with a teacher of one of my students. Got a kid that's getting a little bit older. They're talking about some funny stuff in class. So during a Zoom meeting, which is not helpful, but during a Zoom meeting during COVID, I thought I should probably ask some questions here. This is a public school. I don't exactly know what's being taught. I fully knew. I am the Christian here, this gal I know is not a Christian, I know a little bit about her, and what I know is not necessarily lining up with, with the faith, I fully know that, and so I, like, tried to be sensitive, and I'm like, even, even thought about it and prayed about it, like, I don't want to come across across harsh or, or rude or whatever but I gotta ask some pretty pointed questions here. And I asked the questions, and the conversation, it wasn't terrible, I didn't like, I don't know, yell at anybody, or, or, or you know, you gotta be kidding me, you know, or anything like that. But when I think back to the conversation, do you know what I do? I kinda cringe. Was I divisive in that conversation? Was I putting a roadblock in front of this person that would keep them from coming to the church? They know we're Christians. They know that we're leaders in the church. Was I divisive or was I welcoming to them? I don't... I don't know, I cringe. I definitely could have handled it better. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to have every conversation. This is something that we pray about. This, this sin that we deal with, the separation between us and God, the separation and the sin of the world, it does have to be acknowledged. There is a time and a place for that. But we cannot be divisive. We cannot be outraged and ridiculous and unreasonable and treat the unchurched or the, uh, the outsiders, the non-Christian people, as detestable dogs. Those are the people we are here to tell about the love of Jesus, right? We got to remember that. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to screw it up. And when we screw it up, even as Christians, we will be far from God. We will act like we're separated from God. You know what's interesting about that? When we realize that we're separated from God, when we act divisive in that situation, we're just like everybody else. We are sinful. We are acting sinfully just like everybody. It's not just them. It's not just the people outside the church that are sinful. It's us in here. And it's kind of crazy, but we are unified in our separation from God. Does that make sense? We have this incredible thing in common with the rest of the world. We're no better than them. We're sinful. We're broken. And we need that separation resolved, we need that gap closed. We need to be brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the next thing that we have. We are far off from God, and we need to be brought near. Verse 13 has this incredible but. Paul did it again. In verse 4, he had this but God, after he goes through a list of our sins. Uh, you know, we're guilty of trespasses and sins. We follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then he goes, But God, it's awesome. But that word, but, opposes the previous statement. And he does it again. Remember you were alienated. Remember the cultural division that you had. Remember that you've been separated from God because of your trespasses and sins. But he says in verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is our solution. I told you we need to be unified in something. We need to be unified by something. This is it. We can be unified with the world in our sinfulness to, to some extent, but we can be unified with Christians and, and hopefully unify the world in the fact that we've been brought near by the blood. It's by the blood that draws us near to God. How does this happen? What does it mean to be brought near to God? I got two different scenarios. One is a story. These are, these are Bible stories. One is a, a story of good old Adam and Eve. were near to God and then far away from God and the other one is someone who was far from the father and was brought near to the father Adam and Eve lived in the garden life was amazing right we talked about this a little bit earlier peace peace love and happiness (laughs) okay no wars no hostility no sin no shame walking around naked Like, life must have been good in the garden. And then sin enters into the world. They take the fruit that they're not supposed to be eating. And what happens to them? They're cast out. They end up far from God. Cast out into a world. And what happens to their world? It went from amazing to not so amazing. Difficult, hard, miserable, painful. Labor would then be incredibly painful. Work. We would, would only get done by the sweat of our brow. Work is not cursed, but our work is cursed. Does that make sense? Work is not a curse is what I meant. Work is not a curse, but our work has been cursed. Life is difficult, life is challenging, and the world is divisive. That's where we live today, <laughs> in this brutal, difficult world. And the time they were near to God was a picture of heaven, being in close proximity to God, being near to God, where there was peace and an end to the hostility. So do we just have to wait for heaven for things to get better? Are we just here enduring this brutal world and waiting for heaven? No. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 13? We went through this, I don't know, like six months ago, it feels like, chapter 1 of Ephesians. We're just taking our time, that's what I mean. Going through this book. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I forgot to include the rest of this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it? we get a down payment of the inheritance through the holy spirit when we believe the word of truth when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him we get a little we get a little bit of the inheritance that heaven that peace that 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 end to the disunity we get that today right here right now it's what paul meant when he said but now He's saying right now we can have a piece of the unity, a piece of that, of that perfect unity that will be in heaven. We can get a piece of that today so that Jews and Gentiles can get along, so that you and your spouse can get along, so that us and non-church people can get along, so that Republicans and Democrats can get along. So that the people that you disagree with, you can then get resolve that conflict in humility. Speaking truth in love. We can go from far off to then brought near when we believe in the word of truth. And the second story illustrates that. This is the story of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with this story, I've, most of you are familiar with it. Maybe a couple of you aren't. The son rejects his father, says, ah, I'm done with this. I want my inheritance early, Uh, essentially wishing his father was dead so he could go make a name for himself. His father, for some reason, decides to give it to him. I don't know why. But the father gives him the inheritance. The son takes off, goes into town, and tries to make a name for himself, has a heck of a time while he's doing it. Then a recession comes, the famine comes, and the son is wiped out. He has no more money left. He's stuck working this dead-end job, shoveling pig stuff in the barn. It's brutal. He's looking like, this food is actually looking kind of good. You know you're in a bad spot when that happens. And he says, you know what? I should go back to my dad. His, his hired hands are, are in better shape than I am. So he makes the trek back. And let's read Luke 15, 20 to see what happened, to see how him and the father come near the son is far off and then he arises he arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him just stop there for a second he he's trying to get to the father but he can't get to the father can he He's trying to draw near to the father, but the father sees him a long way off, has compassion for his son, and runs and embraces him and kisses him. The father brings the son near to him. Can you get any more nearer than the father than that? This picture of him being far off and the father bringing his son near to him is a picture of us. This is what happens when we are far off from God, when we realize it, and we humble ourselves before God, and we say, similar to what the son said here, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a picture of us being far off in our sinful situation, in our sinful lives, being divisive, being hostile, to one another, recognizing that we have sinned, not just in other people, but sinned before heaven, sinned before God. We have been alienating ourselves from God. We've been alienating others from the church. Oftentimes, this is a picture of us in repentance coming before God and saying, "I I am not worthy. I have screwed up again. I am sinful. Please, God. And God comes and will embrace us, will bring us near to himself. And it all happens by the blood. The one story, the one part of the the story that is left out. Jesus told this story, by the way. The one part of the story is the blood that was necessary to bring the son near. Jesus hadn't shed the blood yet. He He wasn't ready for the cross yet. But that separation that we experience, that separation that we have from God, that has to be bridged, that, that offense that we had before God, it must be paid for. The situation was so bad that somebody had to die. It would either be us or it would be somebody else, and praise God, it was Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for us to pay for that, to bridge that, that immeasurable separation. And because of that, we are no longer aliens. We are no longer illegal aliens in the kingdom of God, but we are full-on citizens when we believe that we've been brought near by the blood. We're no longer strangers to the promise of God and without hope anymore. We are sons and we are daughters with hope by the blood of Jesus. Our debt has been paid by the blood. It's, it, without the blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 says, it must be the blood. The blood is what we need for forgiveness. The blood is what we need for redemption. It's incredibly important for us to realize that. It's the blood that will reconcile us to God. And when we are reconciled to God, when, when the hostility is gone, when there's the forgiveness of sins, then we can go into the world and try to reconcile relationships. Then we can leave our divisiveness behind and in humility, we can speak the truth in love. Not get angry and not get outraged at what's going on. The blood is what brought Jews and Gentiles together. The blood is what we need to bring us together. In the church And in the world. Last thing, how do you be brought near to God? How can you make that happen? You can't, really. God is the one that brings us near. It's God's sovereignty that will grab you and will bring you near, embrace you and hug you and kiss you and tell you that forgiveness is yours. You are, this is my son, this is my daughter. But James 4.8 gives us kind of a little bit of hope there. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Like that picture of the prodigal son who's on his way back to the father. But, but, it's, but it's pointless. He can't make it to the father. It's too far of a trip. The separation is too great. We need the father to come grab us and, and bring us near to him. But there's something in that verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is what we're doing this morning, seeking God, learning about his scriptures, wanting more of his love. This is what we're doing. Let's draw near to God and pray that he would draw near to us. Let me end in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for uh, this passage in Ephesians that Paul wrote for us. God, we pray over the, uh, the issue of disunity. We pray over the, the divisiveness in our country, in our world, in our homes even. We pray That you would bring us near to you by the blood. We want to be as near as the son. The prodigal son and the father. We want to be as near to you as Christ is. and, And that is possible for us. We can be in Christ. When we hear the word of truth and we believe in you. And we believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what that means for us. We have it. The separation between us has been bridged, and we pray that that separation would then tee us up to, to, to unite with each other and the church and the world. We can resolve some of these things that we wouldn't shy away from sin or gloss over sin or try to conform to the world. That's not what we're doing. Pray that we would speak the truth. In love in all of these different scenarios that we that we come up with. We pray that you would give us wisdom in those situations. We pray that we could understand whoever's here that is without hope. We pray that, that they could see that they're no longer aliens in the kingdom of God, that they are full citizens in the kingdom, that they are no longer strangers of the promises of hope, that they are sons and daughters of you. The separation has been bridged. We've been brought near, and it's by the blood. Pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. We pray this in your great name. Amen.